Okay, that was the 18th vial of blue liquid. <gasps> Oops, the 19th. Ah, Ryu, you're back. I guess you didn't have any luck searching the usual places. I'm not even going to ask what you were doing to his workshop. Anyway, no luck in the usual places. I even searched some of the unusual ones. The thing that really gets me, though, you know how high my sleight of hand score is? I can do dramatic escapes. I'm a wizard at escapes, if you'll excuse the pun. But wait, you don't have to because Ostron's gone. Anyway, I just can't figure it out. On April 21st at 11 a.m. Central Time, D&D Direct announced Spelljammer. Three minutes later, Ostron posts to the staff channel in Discord, thanks everyone, it's been fun. Twelve seconds later, he signs off Discord and hasn't been back online since. Less than a minute later, I lock all the doors and turn on the anti-magic field, knowing that he's going to flee, and somehow, somehow he got out of here without me noticing. He is trying me. Like he didn't just teleport out? Anti-magic field, remember? It would have been impossible. Un unless he did something crazy, like convince me to drop the anti-magic field long enough for him to teleport out and then erase my memory. Ostrom? No, I mean, that doesn't sound like the type of thing he'd do. Anyway. Okay, I lied. I do have to ask what you're doing to his workshop. Right, so I figured if we can't find out where he went, we can just antagonize him into coming back. See, I know he's got all of this stuff alarmed, and I also suspect he's got some secret sending stones hooked up somewhere to monitor the audio as well. And, I mean, look at the place. So far I've squidged all the squidgies, I've smashed all the smashies, I even mixed that blue thing into the yellow one, put it on those dice, and it's making all the d20s roll natural 21s. I mean, I even took his planar micro calipers, you know, those ones he spent all years calibrating. Anyway, I just outright threw those into the gelatinous cube. And honestly, I could have swore that would have been the tipping point. Hmm. You know, I think I'm just going to throw some rocks at Rostro. <sighs> uh, okay. I mean, I know you're trying to summon him back, but remember how that one time you tried to kick it and its probability manipulation field meant that somehow I kicked myself between the legs? Well, I mean, with Ostron gone... <laughs> what did I just say? Eh, it was a risk I was willing to take. You know, for Ostron. Yeah, okay, for Ostron. I, I get it. Uh, try it again. Right. <laughs> Ow! Oh, God. Okay, okay, I don't think this is going to work. Ah, uh, so, um, what are we going to do about the show, then? I mean, it looks like it's just... You and me. Um, hey, we've got a few minutes before we've got to be in the recording booth, right? Can you, like, cut open that bag of holding? Uh, the one, no, that one over there, the one with the label that says PSI. Um, you mean psi, as in psionics? I'm pretty sure that means pounds per square inch. Why would Ostron have anything psionic? Okay, here goes nothing, I guess. Okay, well, I think we've probably trashed his workshop all that we can. I guess he's really not coming back. Show? Yeah, show. It won't be the same, though.
When what's in your pocket is, is glass blower tools. When the spell jam is sugar-free. When the 1% have their heads in the clouds. That is when heroes rise. You stand between me and my lord and kin. Be gone. It is not our abilities that show what we truly are. It is our choices. Welcome, brave adventurers, to Heroes Rise. I'm Ryu, and joining us on our quest this evening are two... Um, one of the wisest adventurers in the land. And I'm Lennon. Yeah, this bit just doesn't flow right. And this is the 208th entry into our chronicle, recorded on Saturday, April 23rd, and released Wednesday, April 27th, over at HeroesRisePodcast.com. Oh man, it really doesn't flow right. Ugh. So, Lennon, what's in store for our brave adventurers this week? Well, in this week's Adventurers Pack, Ryu tries to find a tool to replace Ostron. That still didn't summon him here. Fine, fine. Next, we check out some D&D news as we bring you everything announced from D&D Direct 2022. And then next, we take a short rest and head into the Gnomish Workshop and learn all about the wonderful world of probability before finally heading into the scrying pool to see what you have to say. That takes care of all the introductions, so let's take a look at what's in our Adventurers Packs. You always carry this machine bag? We're going to get out of here. We're not going to need a few things. Name one thing you're going to need the stupid rule for. So if you guys remember one of my first Adventures Packs many, many episodes ago, I gave you guys a fun little resource for keeping track of and remembering to use all of the items in the various backpacks that come in the standard starting gear for your level 1 characters. Along the same lines, another thing that a lot of players either forget they have or don't know how to use is the assortment of toolkits in which a player character might have proficiency. Because how in the world are cobbler's tools or a glassblower's kit good for anything? And how is having proficiency in cook's utensils possibly going to add anything to your roleplay? Well, I'm glad you asked, hypothetical listener, because the fine folks over at halflinghobbies.com have done their research for you and compiled a mostly complete list of all the toolkits available in 5th edition and how one might be able to leverage their proficiency in said tools to add to the roleplay and even the mechanics of the game in some aspects. So, for example, let's start with the cobbler's tools. Guys, did you realize that as a character proficient in cobbler's tools, you can deduce things like a person's social status based on their footwear? the weight and height of a subject just by looking at their footprints, or even where someone has traveled recently simply by glancing down at their feet. And shoemaking, especially by hand, is a very precise art. So mechanics-wise, your character can utilize a dex or int check with your cobbler's tools proficiency bonus to do things like measure something at a glance, repair leather armor, make casts or molds of something, or even stitch up a hurt companion's wounds because you have to know how to sew for leatherworking. And guys, if you know how to sew leather, you know how to sew skin. Now, that would be up to your DM on that last one for how effective that would be, but all of that is on top of the create hidden compartment feature detailed in Xanathar's Guide. Now, I don't know about you, but I certainly did not know that cobbler's tools could be so useful. Now the glassblower's kit is a little bit more niche, but it still is much more useful than most players probably give it credit for. As a glassblower, you could use that proficiency bonus 
to know if a glass item has been infused with magic, possibly what potions or other substances contained in a glass vial or bottle based on how it interacts with the glass, and even possibly with the help of the party spellcaster, or maybe your character is the spellcaster, you could infuse that glass with magic to make it nigh unbreakable. You can also find weak points in glass for breaking through barriers, or you can cut through glass for stealth and reconnaissance missions without alerting your victims. Now, Cook's utensils are another seemingly mundane tool that is so much more than just feeding your party at the end of a long day of adventuring. As a proficient cook, not only can you, as Xanathars points out, give up to five party members an extra hit die of healing during a short rest, but guys, you can also tell the difference between safe and poisonous foliage. You can make traps and snares for game. You can deduce if any plants or animals are sick or healthy. And you can even spot poison and other impurities in your food. And obviously not just the food that you made. Now, if I had to come up with a downside for this resource, the only thing that I can really think of is that the healer's kit is missing from the list, but... I think everyone knows how to use that one by now fairly effectively. But other than that, this is a really great free resource showing you some of the more useful ways to use that random proficiency you may not have even known you acquired at character creation. And you've probably almost certainly forgotten by now that you even have it. With the exception of the Thieves Tools and Healers Kits, no one at my tables has ever used a toolkit in-game. And I really think that it's because most of them don't know what to do with them. So with the help of this resource, I am already planning uses for my players' proficiencies in our coming games. Okay, you know what? I should have thought of this a while back, and I, I can't believe it's just dawned on me. Do... what? Oh, no. Lennon, darling, do me a favor and entertain the audience whilst I'm gone. I'm not about to let a mathematician with an irrational hatred of crystal spheres ruin things. Oh, okay, bye. Um, okay, so uh, yeah, tools in D&D. I think, personally for me, this is something where I, as a DM, am also guilty of not involving tool checks in what my players do, primarily because even I forget they exist, and there is a whole chapter in Xanathar's Guide about creative ways to use them, so I think as well as the players getting ideas about what to do from this, it's also really good for DMs. I mean, you ran through a few there about things like the, um, the cobbler's kit, which I think is actually super helpful, and mentally I'm already coming up with like hundreds of different ways to use this, but there is so much creativity in all of this here that, I mean, it, it's... It's a shame, honestly, that something this in-depth isn't included in an official Wizards publication somewhere, because I feel that this could really bring a lot more out-of-the-box thinking and role-playing to a lot of situations that would have otherwise just resulted in basic passive checks, or sometimes even active checks, like, you know, oh, I want to try and open this window. Well, okay, Thieves Tools check. No one ever thinks of doing a glass blowers tool check. And... Yeah, I really like this. It's a hefty document as well, so if you are going to start reading this, just be aware that each tool has about four or five paragraphs of information to it, which is great because it really gives you some additional ideas about what you can do here. I'm back, and for a scrawny man, he certainly is a bit of work to lift. Do me a dear and bring him in. Maybe it's the solid metal chair you tied me to? Uh, also, um... 
I'm a warlock now, and even before I was like a ranger, so my strength score isn't. Oh, fine. I've got the whole show to recover spell slots anyway. Have some telekinesis. Ow! Can you at least loosen the ropes a little? I can barely feel my feet. How'd you even find me, anyway? I really don't think we need to get into that, so... Now that you're back, I was just talking about halfling hobbies. Okay, fine, but can you untie me, at least? Not a comfy chair? Do you promise not to run away again? If I did, would you send the killer DM after me again? If I didn't send her, she'd do that all on her own. Why was she so intent on getting him back, though? Like, oh, oh yeah, I get it. I, I mean, I hate it, but I get it. I don't, but fine, no more running. Oh, blood flow, blood, oh, oh, uh, sleep, sleep. Okay, I'll just deal. Um. Anyway, yeah, I agree with what basically heard Lennon saying from a distance. Yeah, the extra breakdown on different ways to use all the different tool kits is really really nice like everybody has said I haven't even thought of half of these and I have wanted to include more ways to make the kits applicable because after a while like certain skills no skill ever gets to be, like, universally applicable, but a couple of them definitely start to feel like mm -hmm. sort of god skills after a while if you just work only based on the skills. But if you limit it to, okay, in order to do this without imposing disadvantage, you have to have one of these kits for a lot of these things, it really opens up the versatility and the the nuance to non-combat encounters, particularly if you're looking to make like espionage or social encounters or something like detective work more interesting. There's so many of these kits and their uses that suddenly become essential. And honestly, I get that this is a blog post and it's a hefty one at that, but if there were a couple of additional rollable tables or something on here, this could easily be a paid-for DM's Guild resource, and I would be happy to pay for it. Yeah. Yeah, I'd second that. Good find, Ryu. Thanks. Links to Halfling Hobbies, the complete list of tools and how to use them in D&D 5e, can be found in our show notes. But is there something that's an absolute must-have at your tables? Found a cool app, book, or other item you'd like to share with other adventurers and dungeon masters? If so, let us know about it on social media at Heroes Rise D&D, or by emailing SendingStone at HeroesRisePodcast.com. But for now, let's check out some D&D news, as long as Ostron doesn't run away again. Sire, I have news. Now what sort of news do you have? It's not bad news, is it? No, I can't take bad news. Furniture all over town has been turning into monsters. Before we get to the bigger announcement this week, we're going to rewind the clock a little to last week and let you know about a piece of news that we didn't get a chance to cover. D&D Beyond, the official digital toolset for 5th edition Dungeons & Dragons, has been acquired by Wizards of the Coast. This announcement came as a surprise to many, primarily because they didn't realise that it wasn't actually already a part of the Wizards family. So just in case you didn't know, the original project was started as an entirely independent venture by Adam Bradford before being acquired by Curse, who were in turn acquired by Fandom. 
Adam Bradford then left D&D Beyond and now works over at Demiplane, making similar tool sets for Pathfinder, Free League, Marvel, World of Darkness, and many other tabletop role-playing game systems. Almost a year after Adam's departure, Wizards of the Coast have purchased D&D Beyond from Fandom and are working on even deeper integration with Wizards products. In a press release on the Wizards of the Coast website, President Cynthia Williams said, quote, The strategic acquisition of D&D Beyond will deliver a direct relationship with fans, providing valuable, data-driven insights to unlock opportunities for growth in new product development, live services and tools, and regional expansions. As part of Wizards, the brand's leadership will soon be able to drive a unified, player-centric vision of the world's greatest role-playing game on all platforms." End quote. So it looks like Wizards has big plans for the future of D&D Beyond, and have in fact already taken the first steps by releasing their own product direct to both D&D Beyond and their own new digital D&D library, entitled Monstrous Compendium Volume 1 Spelljammer Creatures. We'll be touching more on that later on, because the other big news, on April 21st, Wizards held the first D&D Direct, a new yearly showcase with exclusive announcements for the future of D&D, and for their first D&D Direct, they did not disappoint. So, what was unveiled at the aforementioned D&D Direct? Almost everything you can think of. There's a lot to cover, and we plan on doing as deep a dive as we possibly can on all of it in future shows, but in case you weren't able to tune into the live show, here's a brief list of what was announced. D&D Universes Beyond. Okay, so sidebar, I know we said a brief list, but this one needs a little bit more explanation. Back in 2021, Wizard's other wildly successful gaming property, Magic the Gathering, announced its Universes Beyond project. Essentially a way to branch well outside the established Magic the Gathering setting and into other IPs not owned by Wizards. Following on from their successes with The Walking Dead and the Godzilla franchises, Wizard announced MTG Universes Beyond product lines for Warhammer 40k, Lord of the Rings, and a couple of others. Given the success of Universes Beyond in the Magic the Gathering space, Wizards are embarking on a similar thing for their D&D space. Okay, back to the rest of the list. Next up is Creature and Terrain Cases. These will be two new physical products to enhance gameplay. The Creature's Case features several tokens with a ton of decals to create creature tokens on the fly, and the Terrain Case is similar but with dungeon tiles and decals. A new starter set, Dragons of Stormwreck Isle. As well as the rulebook, adventure, dice, and pre-generated characters, this set will also feature videos showing beginner DMs how to take their first steps in running adventures. This should come as a shock to almost no one, but Dragonlance Shadow of the Dragon Queen was the next item. It's coming to D&D in two physical formats. The first is a hardcover adventure book, the second is what wizards are calling a battle game, which looks to be a tabletop miniatures war game of sorts, and it's touted as including crossplay with the adventure. Next up we have D&D Onslaught, a new one-on-one -on -one tactical mini skirmish game where players choose from the Zentarium, Emerald Enclave, Harpers, or the monstrous denizens of the dungeon, and battle it out with a skirmish game twist in the D&D universe. And the thing that sent Ostron running for the hills, Spelljammer, is actually confirmed. Coming in a three-book box set, we're promised a thrilling space-based adventure setting for the world's greatest role-playing game. And moving outside of the tabletop sphere and onto the screens, both little and large, the Dungeons & Dragons movie was finally given a real title and release date. Dungeons & Dragons Honor Amongst Thieves will hit our screens on March the 3rd, 2023. You can tell it's not a British production, by the way, because for a start it would be honor amongst thieves, and secondly, honor would be spelled correctly. 
with a U in it. Anyway, we also... We also hear of a new Wizards of the Coast first-party actual play game, Legends of the Multiverse, an ambitious D&D play series that tells interwoven stories of many adventurers across the multiverse in one-hour pre-recorded episodes. The core cast of Legends are Sunny, played by Deborah Anwal, Kayo Kuroshi, played by B. Dave Walters, Backsai, played by Gina Darling, Riddle, played by Megan Kenrick, and Torven, played by Todd Kenrick, who will be joined by additional Legends each week on their quest for adventure. Finally, for the video game fans, we learn that Baldur's Gate 3 will see an official release date in 2023, and the latest module for the Neverwinter MMO, Dragon Slayer, will introduce the new Dragon Hunt system and will be releasing on all platforms in June. So, you might have noticed we were a little light on our description of, you know, that module. This is partly because it's the one that we have the most detail on, so that's what we're going to talk about tonight, and partly because between segments I agreed to stay if we got it out of the way. So, what do we know about this upcoming release? Well, like Lennon said, this isn't just a hardcover book, but instead is being released as a box set format that Wizards is calling a campaign collection. So it has more in common with the rules expansion set than a standard release. At least, that's how it appears at first glance. Diving into the contents, you'll see that we have a four-panel DM screen designed for use with the Spelljammer campaigns, a poster map of the Rock of Brawl, an asteroid city that can serve as both an adventure location and a campaign hub, and then three books. The Astral Adventurer's Guide, a book for players and DMs that presents the astral plane as a campaign setting and includes space-based character options, spells and magic items, deck plans and descriptions for spell jamming ships, and more. Boo's Astral Menagerie, a book for dungeon masters that presents game statistics and descriptions for over 60 creatures found in wild space in the Astral Sea, including astral elves, cosmic horrors, lunar and solar dragons, murder comets, and space clowns. And Light of Xerixis, a hardcover adventure for dungeon masters that is set in the astral plane and is designed for characters levels 5 through 8. With three hardcover books, you'd be forgiven for thinking that this is the biggest campaign setting released for 5th edition, with Eberron, arguably the biggest D&D campaign setting outside of Forgotten Realms, only getting a single hardcover release. So three hardcovers has to be huge, right? Well, Unfortunately, no. Each hardcover book is only 64 pages each, meaning that the three hardcovers combined come to a total of 192 pages, a full 128 pages less than Eberron Rising from the Last War, and even 60 pages short of Mythic Odysseys of Theros. In fact, the combined pages of all three hardcovers only equates to a book the size of Tasha's or Xanathar's. Essentially, this is a thinner setting book than any we've ever seen before, split into three books, plus a DM screen, and with a price increase with a recommended retail price of 70 US dollars. Moving on from the campaign collection format to the setting itself, as the tagline promised, we're going to have thrilling space-based adventures in the world's greatest role-playing game. To give the release its full title, Spelljammer Adventures in Space gives us the Astral Plane as a campaign setting. The Astral Plane is home of the stars and gateway to the heavens, and so teems with excitement and possibility. In order to break the confines of the world you're on, you're going to need a Spelljammer. Uh, we did a primer on Spelljammer in 
episode 187 if you're curious about the history of it and want more info on what it is, but essentially the Spelljammer in this context is a magical component of a ship that can cross the oceans of wild space, that's D&D's term for conventional space surrounding a planet. From there you'll be able to pilot your ship and ply the silvery void of the astral sea and hop between the worlds of the D&D multiverse. Eager-eared listeners who are also Spelljammer fans, and I have to believe that Venn diagram is bigger than you'd probably imagine, may have noticed that there is no mention of the Rainbow Ocean that is the Phlogiston, and that the 5th edition of the Spelljammer seems to be utilising the Astral Plane. Traditionally, everything within Spelljammer, the crystal spheres containing the wild space that make up a planet's immediate neighbourhood, and the Phlogiston connecting the various spheres, all takes place on the Prime Material Plane. Maybe 5th edition Spelljammer won't be as traditionally Spelljammy, and is instead taking the 4th edition approach? In addition to the Spelljammer announcement, which is set to be released on August 16th by the way, as mentioned earlier, Wizards have published their first assets to D&D Beyond and to the new D&D Digital Library entitled Monstrous Compendium Volume 1 Spelljammer Creatures. Before we get into the book, it's worth touching on the new digital library. As it stands right now, Wizards has three official repositories for digital assets, the Dungeon Masters Guild, D&D Beyond, and the new D&D Digital Library. The Dungeon Masters Guild is essentially a digital bookstore that allows for self-publication of material for use in D&D. D&D Beyond is a toolset and marketplace allowing for true digital integration from character sheets through to pop-ups and hyperlinks when the DM is running a module from there. The Digital Library is a repository of digital-only assets available to anyone with a Wizards of the Coast account. Back in the beginning of the pandemic, Wizards ran a successful stay-at-home-and-play campaign where they released free PDF copies of things such as the condensed rules from the starter sets, mini-adventures, and so on. It would seem the success of this campaign led to the creation of the D&D Digital Library, and although we don't know exactly what Wizards plans to do with it going forward, Given that they announced it after their acquisition of D&D Beyond, there is every possibility it's going to be a place where wizards can just offer free supplemental material, such as the Elemental Evil Player's Companion PDF or their latest release, Monstrous Compendium Volume 1 Spelljammer Creatures. This PDF weighs in at 14 pages and gives us 10 monsters that are suitable for any D&D campaign, particularly if you want to add a hint of strange new worlds to your games. Five of the monsters are completely new to D&D, and five are from previous versions of the Spelljammer setting. The creatures in question range from the CR 18 Gadabout, a medium plant you wear like a spacesuit that facilitates safe travel in the airless void of wild space, to the CR 16 Nightmare Beast, a gargantuan monstrosity with a disintegrating gaze. The monster stat blocks are written in Wizard's new format, so more of the actions are listed in the stat block, and any creature that has spells just has X uses per day rather than spell slots that the DM has to track. The monsters in this PDF are designed to give us a taste of what's to come when Spelljammer Adventures in Space is released later this year, and is completely free, available at D&D Beyond, the D&D Digital Library, or through the links in our show notes. Okay, I, I, don't, I don't think I can get past Space Clowns. Um... <laughs> yeah, maybe the maybe the the space dragons will make up for it. Well, if it helps, there's at least two space dragons that we know of, Luna and Solar, but there's only Yay. one space clowns. Oh, it's plural. Dang it. Um, <laughs> but space dragons, space dragons yeah, they, are good. Yeah, they added one because Spelljammer used to only have the one type. Mm-hmm. I'm surprised that that's all that they did right now. 
Well, I mean, they do have that whole 60 creature astral menagerie book coming out. True. So there could be more there. But I'm actually oddly intrigued by this. Yeah, see, the thing is, I thought you would be, because when I looked at it, my my first thoughts were, okay, this is Spelljammer, but maybe not quite as we know it. No, this is... This is not Spelljammer. Like, they they ripped it apart and tried to mash it back together. So, Which is kind of what they did in 4th edition. Well, they never did 4th edition. Uh, they never did Spelljammer in 4th edition. Unless you just mean what they did to everything in 4th edition. Oh, I, meant, I meant conceptually, because they, did, they didn't release a Spelljammer campaign setting, but they did release bits of it, like how they were doing it in 5th edition where they were like, oh, the GIF have shown up here and mm. the Thrykreen have shown up here. They did have a thing where it's like, oh, here's a spell jammer as an item and this helps you to traverse the Astral Sea. And also in 4th edition it could plane shift, which was a bit of a weird mechanical change. But either way, yeah, this is this is not 2nd and 3rd edition spell jammer at all. Yeah. And that, I mean, because and this has come up because a few people I saw a few people had asked like what was my problem with Spelljammer and I've gone into detail about this in past episodes but basically my problem is is that Spelljammer was not internally consistent at all it was basically like in my opinion someone just said let's put D&D in space and that was like it as far as design or thought that was put <laughs> into it they just said put D&D into space how? I don't know, just do it. And that was their entire guiding principle. So it looks like they're putting a little bit more thought into it, which will, in my opinion, improve things drastically. But I'm pretty sure in many other people's opinion, this is going to completely ruin everything. Well, I will say, as somebody who was a fan of the, let's call it the original, I'm actually more intrigued by this version because I think the way that they've altered it like you said, has made it more consistent. Makes it seem more like a, a truly realized campaign setting rather than a, we're just going to throw this bowl of pasta at the wall and try to make some <laughs> crystal spheres around the bits that stick. Mm. I'm, I'm just uh, excited about being able to play through the greatest Disney movie ever, Treasure Planet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's, there's something for everyone here, um, particularly if you, if you like spacey stuff. I did like the the murder comets. I felt that that was... It probably isn't a wordplay on murder hornets, but I, I like that throwback <laughs> to the part of the, the whole 2020 thing that, uh, you know, touch wood, has not actually materialised yet. Um, yeah, the one thing, one thing that I did want to talk about with all this, though, is we knew that they were, from previous announcements, going to be trialling what they called a new product format, and we were wondering if they were going to bundle the Dyson miscellany sets and make sort of smaller versions of Beetle and Grimm's, but this is a different format. It's called the Campaign Collection, and I'm a little bit ticked off by it, because <laughs> what we are basically getting here is one module that they've split into three separate books, and, you know, page count alone, it's nowhere near as big as any other setting guide, particularly Mythic Odysseys of Theros, which we highlighted in the copy, that was something that, even as a Magic the Gathering plane, is not a meaty setting at all. It is basically, this is Greek stuff, but yeah. with magic. And there's one city, Theros. You know, something like Dominaria has 
histories, Zendikar even. But Theros is like there's this one city and that's the entire plane. And that managed to fill up like 300 pages. Spelljammer being 192 pages is less book for what is basically a 50% increase in cost as well. And I'm not sure that's worth it. I get that, you know, prices have increased around the world as part of global supply chains and everything that's happening in Ukraine right now is having a huge knock-on effect, certainly in my part of the world. But at the same time, when Wizards has posted its first billion dollar revenue, and I know that revenue and profit are separate things, but even their profits were well up there in the multi-hundred millions, it seems like a price increase for less book is just... Ah, it just doesn't sit right with me. I don't like it. I don't like it either, but I'm still trying to explain it away in my own head, saying, well, it's probably because of the box and the art on the box, I hope. Right? Maybe? Well, they it's, are... It's still in, more expensive, though. I mean, arguably, you've got the poster map and the DM screen added in there. Hang so, on. Just, just on that, just before you go any further, I want to say other settings did have poster maps. They're included in the book. Like, they're the four-page fold-up yep. thing with perforations okay. at the back. Tomb of Annihilation, for example, is probably one of the bigger ones. Curse right. of Strahd. Mm -hmm. So, all right, then you've got the DM screen included in there. And they've sold DM screens in the past for, like, $10, sometimes 15 so... Add in the nice box, maybe you can argue that's the reason for the price difference. But yeah. what I'm what I'm really interested the pricing discussion aside, because Wizards is catching a lot of flack for pricing on a lot of different things. <laughs> like if you go over to the magic community right now, there are there are trash fires everywhere. I am very curious about the individual pricing for these books. Because I don't think they're going to have any. I was thinking that too. I'm thinking they at least have to on D&D Beyond. Yeah, so I think, I'd like, sorry to interrupt you there, but I think with D&D Beyond, this might be a kind of uh, reason because of the platform, because on D&D Beyond, everything is available in a la carte form. So even previous, like, you can buy single monsters on there. Yeah, no, I get that. But usually they've had releases that parallel the physical books for all the different sources it actually in investigating it doesn't seem like they're doing that in this case which is interesting but yeah i'm i'm reserving judgment on the pricing issue until i see if and how they're going to split them out because apart from the pricing it seems like a decent idea because you can get the if you're a dm you grab the whole box because you need everything so if you're a player, you only need the Astral Adventures Guide. You don't need the Astral Menagerie or the Light of Xerixis Adventure module. So if that's the reason they're splitting them up, and if they become available individually, that could be useful. Because one of the things we've pointed out in the past is that a lot of the resources that Wizards has released were trying to be one size fits all for everybody to sort of quote unquote force everyone to buy the books regardless of their role in the game and this seems to be an attempt to sort of fix that problem 
But mm-hmm. again, it depends on will the books ever be available individually? If so, how much are they going to cost? Because if they offer all three of them, yeah, you can buy them individually. It's 50 bucks for each one. Then, yeah, that represents a problem because then that is seriously um, upping the price for participation. Yeah, I guess if it's $70 for the overall box, then probably 25 per individual thing would sort of like give you a discount for buying the box, if you see what I mean. And stupidly, despite what I was saying before about the cost of this, if it was available at 25 for a book, I, I mean, I'd probably buy it at that price. That's stupid. Why does my brain think that I'm getting like worse value on a product that ultimately costs less if I would buy the component? For sp- ah. Well, because again, we don't know if the individual component is going to be available and if it's going to be cheaper. If they do it I that like way. I like your style. Yeah. <laughs> if they do it that way, then. I don't think this is an, you know, outrageous violation of consumers' trust. But again, if they say, oh yeah, you could buy each book individually, it's 50 bucks of whack, then we're back to, you know, burn the headquarters down because they hate their customers sort of speech. You have not been on the Magic the Gathering subreddit (laughs) at all, have you? I can tell. No, because the Magic the Gathering crowd doesn't give any quarter, like... (laughs) <laughs> they they not only they don't want the prices to stay what they were they want the prices to be reduced because wizards made so much money last year i mean i'm still gonna buy it <laughs> oh yeah i mean i was gonna say i i am too I, i'm clearly gonna buy it because i liked Spelljammer anyway and i'm actually quite confident i'll like this new version and i like the fact that i can say that about a recent wizards product because the last one's I felt a little let down by them. So, yeah, this gives me hope. That could be dangerous, though. I I need to know a lot more details. I mean, the reality is I probably will not be buying it regardless because I'm the type of person that wants space to be space when I'm playing in it. And not fantasy. mm -hmm. And not... Well, not fantasy to this degree. Like, I'm... I'm okay with Star Wars, but, you know, when you're standing on top of a sailing ship that's sailing through space with literal sails and everyone can breathe because magic, and that's like the full stop end of the explanation, that's where you lose me. But I'm really, really curious about this whole Astral Sea thing, because... The Astral Sea used to be where all the gods were, and it had nothing to do with space, despite the name. So, if the Astral Sea has replaced the Crystal Spheres, or the Phlogista, then I want to know what they did with all the gods. Because where are they hanging out? Maybe they're navigational hazards. I mean, that's possible, because... I think on one of the press releases, or no, it's in one of the descriptions of the creatures in the um, compendium. They say that there are corpses of old gods that serve as navigational hazards and um, bases. So that actually could be right. The thing is, if that's what they did, then this is going to seriously tick off all the people who've been begging for Planescape for I don't know. (laughs) I mean, 
yes, but also the fact that they're bringing Spelljammer back should give hope for a Planescape. I know we were saying about Journey Through the Radiant Citadel being, well, now there's no need for it, but you, you never know. You know, well, Journey, Journey Through the Radiant Citadel more specifically put Sigil at risk. This is the first time I've seen anything where it's been, mm, I don't know if Planescape's going to be a thing. Okay. Um, because... There's been, a like, if you look through the lore in the Monstrous Compendium Volume 1, they're talking about corpses of dead gods. They're talking about gith sailing around everywhere. There's a lot of stuff that used to be Planescape that seems to be getting shoehorned in. It might be that they are merging the two and going with Spelljammer for marketing reasons. So speaking of the collection of cosmic creatures for the world's greatest role-playing game, as the tagline informs me, Ryu, what's your favorite out of these? Uh, um, my favorite is the Goon Balloon. The Goon Balloon, okay. Yes, it, it's a beach ball with feet and eyes, and, <laughs> and I love it. <laughs> That's a pretty apt description of what this thing is. Uh, they, the only thing is, they look really cute, but they're not, so, uh, yeah. I feel like it, it would be a pretty, um, pretty interesting thing to throw that at some players, and the, the characters being like, oh, how adorable, and then all of a sudden it starts attacking them. Hmm. <laughs> I mean, the way that it, the way that it is described in the book about the way that it speaks by pumping air through a hidden orifice on its underside but with the <laughs> design of it it makes me think of like a really sort of discordant accordion like the way it gets squeezed and <gasps> in sort of and that's a noise I will never make again I promise um, please don't yeah it's uh these these are weird and incredible little creatures and I'm it, probably going to use these in my regular campaigns. I think a, a bagpipe is also an option there for the sound. Mm -hmm. I'm, I've already been picturing it having the same kind of sound as Pom Pom from Homestar Runner. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah, that would work really well as well. I think my second favorite though is the Drasti. Th that's the tree one, isn't it? Yeah, they're, they're walking lightning trees. Mm. Which again, it's like the weirdness of it does kind of encapsulate the feeling of what Spelljammer is supposed to be. Mm -hmm. Which one was your favorite? I was gonna, I was gonna ask Ostrom. Oh, okay. Actually, sorry. First of all, I think asking me to pick a favorite of Spelljammer creatures is unfair <laughs> to begin with. I am entirely um, aware of what I'm doing right now. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean. I kind of want to say the Clockwork Horrors, except I don't. Okay. The Clockwork Horrors are sort of Mechanus-inspired, like, Robot Wars-type creatures. Well, this is why I, I don't like them, is the Clockwork Horrors are every intelligent, mechanical creature that self-replicates that has ever shown up in any sci-fi setting anywhere. Mm. They are completely generic and function exactly like any of their cousins like they're replicators they're the borg they're it's 
the same exact trope. Now, they were present in the original spell gym, so, you know, the argument can be made that they were there first, but they're the only ones that don't bother me as much as the rest of the other creatures. Although, the, the, I did find the Fractine a little interesting. I just don't quite understand how it's supposed to work. The Fractine, for those who didn't read, it's a two-dimensional creature that basically functions like a mirror that sucks in creatures to an alternate dimension. And it's, it's a very interesting concept, and I like the idea of it, but I feel like it would be very hard to use. Now, I like the fact that you said that you like this, but it doesn't make any kind of logical sense and it's non-consistent because guess where the Fractine originates? Yeah, I know. It's original Spelljammer. Yeah, which, as I've already said, I have problems with original Spelljammer, which may have come up before. (laughs) (laughs) And ironically, the two things that you've highlighted are the things from the original Spelljammer that actually, yeah, they, they have this inconsistency throughout them because of you know, just the inherent nature of it. Having said that, my favourite thing in this, it is a classic Spelljammer villain, in uh, inverted commas, the asteroid spider. I friggin' love these things. (laughs) They are just, well, I mean, as the name implies, you think it's an asteroid, it turns out to be a spider. If you thought the thing crawling around your bathroom was large, this thing is big enough to, like, swallow an entire Spelljammer ship. They are ginormous. Well, technically they're gargantuan. Uh, they are CR15 creatures. Not that CR means anything, I know. Um, with multi-attacks and webs, and they can snare ships, and I just I just like throwing them out there for the whole that is no moon type scene. <laughs> you also know that Carcer is just gonna take this stat block and make it a mimic. Mm-hmm. Carcer takes every stat block and makes it a mimic, even the mimics, which is weird. <laughs> <laughs> So one thing that I really did like about this free PDF is that Todd Kenrick did a an interview with the artist for all of these monsters. And the artist was saying that when he was making a lot of the newer creatures in this, like, like the Eldritch Lich, for example, he was thinking to himself, hey, this would be a cool thing just to add into the picture. And that then he made it his own headcanon. And then when asked about it by Chris Perkins, he was saying, oh, well, this is why I included that in there. This, it's just how I envisioned it. And Chris Perkins was like, that's awesome. We're now including that in the creature's lore. I do have to ask, did he mention anything about being an original Star Trek fan? <laughs> I don't remember him saying anything about that, but okay, I, I wouldn't be surprised. Because somebody on the design team was, and <laughs> that's the reason yeah. the puppeteer parasite is a thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's straight out of TOS, that one. Yeah. Now that we're caught up with the latest D&D news, let's head into the Gnomish Workshop and learn all whoa, whoa, about... Uh, pro- um, whoa, uh, Gnomish... Wor- no, let's, let's not do that. In fact, we should... um. We should probably just, like, stay away from the workshop for, like, at least a few hours. Maybe even a couple of days. Um, oh, uh, I've got it. Let's uh, let's head into the archives of Candlekeep. We don't have anything prepped for the archives? Oh, pff, 
it's fine. I've got some stuff on Shan I've been writing. It, it'll be fine. Come on, quickly. Don't want to keep the dragon marked houses waiting. I require access to all human knowledge. Oh, you've come to the right place, my boy. Oh, there you are. Done packing already? For what? The trip to Eberron. Oh, I, th I thought that was a maybe kind of thing, not a we're going today. Well, Lennon got wind of how easy it is to travel between the planes again. That, and he says due to my recent traumatic experience with D&D Direct and the whole killer DM thing that a vacation would be good for me. He also said I should down tools for a while and quote not even bother bringing anything from the workshop i he's overdoing okay i think i'm done packing didn't you tell me the other day you've had your suitcase packed for this for like months no 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 not not that not that this everything you wished you knew about sharn but don't because you haven't read this yet and it's awesome is that a work in progress I literally just told you I was done with it. Sharn is like a major tourist and trading hub. Don't they have their own informational pamphlets? Well, yes, but they're clearly going to be inferior compared to this. I mean, Eberron is kind of his thing. Shouldn't we at least give it a try? All right, let's dig in. Great. Sharn is one of the best known cities in Eberron. In fact, in many cases, it's the only city most people can even name from Eberron. However, other than it being a big city and possibly knowing some things about towers and needing featherfall tokens, most people aren't aware of the details. Fortunately, I am, and I've decided to share those with everyone. We'll start with the real history. Shan was created along with the rest of Eberron when Keith Baker originated the setting in 2002. He has stated in interviews that the city was always meant to be an important and central feature of Eberron. It was such a feature, in fact, that a supplemental source book, Shan the City of Towers, was published for the Eberron setting in 2004, and multiple adventure resources and fiction novels have been set in the city since then. It could actually be a little too well known. I keep telling people that it's actually possible to have an Eberron campaign that doesn't start and stay in Shan. Read the copy. I did. No? You're right, you did. You actually wrote that in there. Okay, moving on. The origins of the city in-universe require a brief Eberron history lesson. Prior to human and mostly human nations ruling Corvair, the Dakani Empire was in control of things. That empire was primarily goblins of both the regular and hob varieties. They constructed the city that would become Sharn in a series of cliffs on the shore and named it Jasharat. Because of how goblins usually build things, the majority of their construction focused on building down, creating a large number of tunnels and caves that made up the bulk of the city. Then came the attempt by the Dalkir to invade Eberron from another plane. The Dalkir are the ones that like flesh grafting and creating mutated monstrosities. That war lasted a long time, and like any good cataclysmic conflict, the invaders did a huge amount of damage before getting pushed back. In this case, that included the wholesale destruction of Jasharat. The Dakani Empire also basically fell apart after winning against the Dalkir, so there was no one with the time and resources to rebuild the city for a long time. Fast forward a few thousand years, and humans sail over to do what humans usually do when they find a new bunch of land they know nothing about. 
In traditional fashion, a gentleman named Malian the Reaver sailed up the river the ruins were on, found a few hundred goblins still living in the ruins, and decided to build a fort there and enslave the native inhabitants. Since humans are all about building above ground, he had the caves and warrens the goblins constructed sealed off. Also, not being a native goblin speaker, he shortens the name to a place called Sharat. Because it's a port location on a major river that feeds into the ocean, Sharat had no trouble becoming a major trade center and eventually a bustling metropolis. It also had no problem building up. See, the goblins didn't know it at the time, but the site they chose for Jasharat was a manifest zone. Manifest zones are areas where Eberron's material plane has bleed over of energy from another magical location. In this case, the manifest zone connected to the plane of Serania, the plane of air, which helped a lot in creating really tall, sometimes floating towers and structures in the city. Sharat was basically run by themselves for a long time, but eventually someone noticed that there was a gigantic city with thousands of people and, more importantly, a whole lot of trade money, and they didn't have a king ruling over them. Well, said Bregger, first king, uh, soon to be first king of the nation that he would call Breland, we're going to have to do something about that. And he did, and decided that even Sharat was too much of a mouthful, he just renamed it to Shan. Other than the name change, everything continued working in Shan just fine. It got bigger and made even more money for another 800 years. A big factor in that was the dragon-marked houses all moving in and making sure that they had at least an office in the city. That, however, ended up being a little bit more of a liability when Mr. Tarkinen got involved. Tarkinen had what is called an aberrant dragon mark. Without delving into the history of dragon marks and the War of the Mark, Oh, there's a whole appendix on this. Without diving into the history, suffice it to say people with aberrant dragon marks in Eberron are treated as if there's something evil and or cursed about them, particularly by the dragon marked houses. Tarkinen decided that was unfair, which it is, but his response was to go to war with the other houses. He successfully took over Sharn for a bit and established it as a safe haven for people with aberrant dragon marks. Unfortunately, rhetoric, drive, and a determined populace only go so far when your opposition is a group of people that can literally manufacture weapons better than anyone else on the planet. They lost the city, but in a final act of defiance, Tarkinen used the power of his dragon mark to briefly interrupt the air magic sustaining a large portion of the city, causing about half of it to collapse. Sharn stayed in its half-ruined state for a full 500 years, until Galifar I united the lands of Corvair and put real money and resources into rebuilding Sharn. The city made it through the last war mostly intact, but for one notable incident. Saboteurs managed to collapse the Glass Tower, one of the floating structures. It impacted in the river, but when it fell over, it landed in the district of Sharn known as Lower Dura. Apart from the people in the tower, the impact killed hundreds in that part of the city. In modern Eberron, Sharn occupies a similar niche to the one New York does in the United States. Almost everyone has heard of it, and it's the most populous city in Corvair, but it actually holds no political importance outside of itself. It's not the capital of Breland, and no larger government offices were housed there. Also, only one of the dragon-marked houses, Fearlin, has its headquarters there, and they only set up there because their previous HQ was in Siri, and that whole country kind of blew up. Also, in many ways, Sharn acts as a microcosm of Eberron. Almost all of the major races in Eberron can be found somewhere in the city, often in small enclaves, 
And while you probably won't find many halflings actually riding dinosaurs through the streets or houses guarded by undead wardens, it's likely someone at least knows the traditions of native lands around Corvair, if not the other continents. Like most major metropolitan cities, there are districts in the cities, but these are three-dimensional. According to Keith Baker, the city has a footprint of only 16 square miles, or about two-thirds the size of Manhattan, or just a tiny bit smaller than Greenwich for those of you in my neck of the woods. However, the city is a mile tall in many places. Not all of the towers in Shan start on the ground or go all the way up to the maximum altitude, but many do. The districts in Shan are called quarters, and there are nine of them. I'm sorry, what? Look, they're not big on maths, okay? Just roll with it. it be glad it's not 13. Anyway, there are five major quarters, and then there are four lesser ones. The major quarters each have three sort of sub-districts based on height, upper, middle, and lower. The central plateau is the upper crust of Shan. The upper section has Shan's government and most prominent businesses, while even the lower section has some of the nicest residential areas of the city. The differences between high and low altitude get a little more pronounced in other quarters though. Jura features premium shopping in its upper levels, but the lower parts are more blue-collar residences and accesses to the dock area in the lowest part. Jura is also where the falling glass tower hit during the last war, so a lot of the lower living and business spaces were decimated and never really recovered. Memphis has the premium theatre and entertainment venues in the upper levels, and then a lot of ethnic enclaves as you go down until Lower Memphis, which is just this side of the slum. Upper North Edge is the other option for high-end residences if people aren't in the central plateau. Middle North Edge is a very religious area with a heavy population of dwarves, and the lower sections feature affordable housing with mostly peaceful residents. Finally, Upper Tavix Landing is a very secure and regulated area because it's the terminus of most inland travel, including airships and the lightning rail depots. Partly for that reason, the middle section features entertainment and amenities catering to travellers and tourists. The lower section has much of the same, but for those who may want their entertainment to be a little more on the uh, illegal or immoral side. The other quarters are more targeted. Skyway is actually mostly above or at the top of the city, and it is the land of the 1%. None of Skyway's towers and buildings connect to anything else, all seeming to float on clouds, and they can only be accessed by Skyway coaches or beings who can fly. As you can imagine, living in any of them requires an obscene amount of money. Cliffside is the docks area of Sharn, where all the actual sea cargo and trade makes it into the city. It's a fairly typical port docks area in all respects, except for the magical elevators that can lift goods into the rest of Sharn. The Depths aren't technically a district in the city. They refer to the abandoned surface buildings and ruins that were destroyed during the War of the Mark. King Galifar I had them sealed off, and Sharn was rebuilt above them. Officially, they're forbidden, but rumors persist of various treasures or creatures that still lurk there. Hand in hand with the Depths are the Cogs. Where the depths are the ruins of Old Sharn, the cogs are the ruin of Jasharat, the subsurface goblin buildings and tunnels that existed before the human city was even thought of. Technically, those parts of the city are also forbidden, but the Dask criminal organization is rumored to mostly inhabit that space and use it for various shady dealings. Within the various quarters and districts, almost anything is possible. A lot of material has been written about the City of Towers, both fictional and adventuring. As mentioned, every Dragonmarked house 
at least has a presence in the city, and the various merchant districts have goods from all over Eberron. There are also criminal organizations that range from those that operate like Godfather-style Italian mafia to more brutal ones that behave more like the Sineola cartel. That's just the major ones. Also, again, members of nearly every sapient race in Eberron live in Sharn, so any kind of character could show up there with any number of problems. It's also a dense urban center in a magic punk universe, giving you options like self-propelled vehicles. You know those car chase scenes where a car jumps a guardrail and lands on the other street below? You want to do that 20 times in a row and still have it fit in the lore? Welcome to Sharn! Entire campaigns can and have been run completely within the city limits, though apparently, if you do that, you're going to make Lennon cry. Now who's ad-libbing? Sorry. Anyway, nearly every resource on Eberron has at least a section on Sharn, and some of them are explicitly about Sharn. Apart from the official Rising from the Last War, which includes an adventure set in the city, Keith Baker has a number of resources for 5th edition available on the DMs Guild, and he also has a ton of free material available on his website or through his Patreon. So if you want high-flying and down-and-dirty Eberron adventures, check out the City of Towers. Okay, so this sounds like a cool place to go. I definitely want to check out this Skyway place. Yeah, you don't have nearly enough gold. Uh, yet. Can we go to Upper Dura when we get there? I don't think you can afford the shops there either. Again, yet. Okay, well, before we go, we have to clear out the scrying pool. I think if we leave it for another week, Ray Ray's gonna try throwing us off a tower in Sharn without Featherfall tokens. What news from the north? Riders of Rohan! Message for you, sir. Last time we asked you, the listeners out there in the multiverse, do you have a favorite Dragonlance character? Do you have a least favorite Dragonlance character? Why is it Tasselhoff? And Jeremy Crawford, in a recent Sage Advice video, says there are now three interpretations of the rules. Rules as written, rules as intended, and then rules as fun. He says the latter means that the rules should always be used to enhance the fun at the game, and no one should be maliciously correcting or preventing fun based on the written or, quote, intended rules. Do you think rules as fun is something that needs to be spelled out? Do you think there will be any problematic side effects of the official declaration that rules as fun are valid? iSpectre wrote in on Discord to say, First, I include myself in the unsuccessful HR prediction engine as I have spouted more than one tinfoil hat theory behind the scenes. Second, those random stories are likely incorrect and are therefore equivalent to our predictions. That is, likely incorrect. On this week's community questions, I liked Tannis in the first trilogy, but then even I was put off by the King Emo. Why do you need the rule of fun when the rules are fun? I find fun in making what the players want to do fit within the rules. I think this makes character creation choices actually matter. If you aren't going to use the choices, why make them? If you aren't going to apply the rules, why have them? Chivalry Bean on Discord says, The whole point of playing a game with rules is to play by those rules. Rules as written should be rules as intended. It's worse in a tabletop game if a rule is open to interpretation, because it's generally expected most RPGs can't, well, shouldn't, have a rule for everything, so sometimes you have to make a decision. But those decisions should be based on the rest of the rules. If a game has rules that try to enforce realistic tactical combat, then no, you can't cast Fireball, and you shouldn't try. But you might try shoving a crate down some stairs to hit a guy. So you use the rules that are there to get the closest possible outcome to what the rules of the game would be had there been a rule written for it. That's fun. You don't prevent something you should reasonably be able to do within the agreed-upon magic circle you're playing in. Doing that would be unfun. 
And if the rules as written aren't fun and you're always changing them, shouldn't you just be playing Feng Shui 2 or some other game instead that is fun? I was wondering when he was going to drop that in. Anyway, Alephic <laughs> Sausage Gravy on Discord writes in and says, The rules debate is a lot more grey than black and white. I think we all want to say rules as written is the way to go, but how many of us actually have house rules or have changed rules just for simplicity's sake or complexity's sake in Nostrum's case? I think to most of us veteran gamers it seems like either a stupid or obvious thing to say, but given the amount of new players in 5th edition I think it's important the idea of rules as fun gets restated every now and then. It's written in the PHB and in most if not all RPG books that the most important rule is to have fun. I don't think the idea of Crawford's statement is throw out the rules and have anarchy, but more if something is hampering the group's ability to enjoy themselves, don't feel bound by what's written in the book. Which is why I think the most important rule is actually the not mentioned rules as agreed. So whether using only Wizards of the Coast rules, third party resources, borrowing cool things from other games or having house rules, as long as your gaming group agrees, that is all that should matter. Pretentious Latin name wrote in on Discord to say regarding rules as written, rules as intended, rules as fun designations, I feel like everything is honestly already covered under the rule zero. You run the type of game you and your players want to run. You're not going to be banned from anything if you change potion drinking from an action to a bonus action. One should always be careful not to let the players step on each other's toes or let power distribution in the party become too unbalanced. Learning how things interact inside the game world takes time and experience and I can see why DMs might hesitate to mess with things too much. The rules should definitely be useful and usable, because otherwise why bother? But I almost wish they would officially come out and say that if rules as written and rules as intended seem to conflict, it becomes the DM's call. Maybe they've already said that and I just missed it, but it seems like the easiest possible solution to me. That's how the groups I'm in run, and I haven't seen anyone argue with the DM on a referee call like that. One of the benefits of having tight-knit groups to play with consistently. Phoenix on Discord says, My group uses a fourth designation, RAAU, rules as agreed upon. Rules form the structure of the game and are needed to make the game work. Rules aren't in themselves fun, and just saying rules as fun sounds ridiculous. Rules are necessary, though. My problem isn't as much with the interpretation of the rules as it is with the vagueness a lot of them have. Using DM's discretion is a cop-out and ultimately puts us at odds with the players. Stop worrying about the rules and concentrate on the important things. There is a terrible shortage of DMs. Help make the game fun for them. Stop putting all the heavy lifting on them. Mordenkainen's is a great start. As for Dragonlance, it wasn't one individual that stands out to me. It was the relationships the characters had with each other. I was invested in Tasselhoff and Flint, Caramon and Raislin, Tannis and his emo self. I only ever read the core books, but I really liked them. And Totally Awesome on Discord says, It's been many years since I've read the Dragonlance series. Decades, honestly. But I seem to remember enjoying Tika and Goldmoon as characters. Marty's Meatwagon Reborn on Discord says, Wow. So, Rules as Fun dates back to at least 2015 when Jeremy Crawford was writing Sage Advice online. It feels like a strange label to me because it's less of an interpretation and more of a formal permission to use house rules and or simple DM fiat. Maybe it's useful for having conversations with people to find out if you want to play with them or not, like a matchmaking service for rules as written lovers. I feel like if I'm at the point of googling for clarification of D&D rules though, having an official resource reminding me that the game should be fun for everyone is a waste of internet bandwidth. Or maybe someone needs the reminder. I keep meaning to read Dragons of Autumn Twilight to find out what all the fuss is about, 
but I knew basically nothing about Dragonlance until you wise adventurers took that deep dive. So thank you. I will never tire of hearing Lennon's deep thoughts on Kendra. Well, my thoughts are actually quite shallow. Um, the only <laughs> deep thing about it is the kick to the face. Yeah. That's the deeper, the better. If you kick through them, you can launch them further. Okay. All right. All right. All right. I'm, I mean, I'm chill. I'm chill. I'm chill. I, I do kind of love how Tasselhoff totally almost killed himself because he tried to jump off a dragon's back after the map that he was writing flew out of his hands. <laughs> and yet I'm not surprised. <laughs> also, I found out that uh, um, there's a uh, Dragons of Autumn Twilight animated movie, which oh dear. I, I came up. Yeah, no, yes, um, it is. It is. Every bit as if, if you thought the Dungeons and Dragons live action movie was terrible, you need to watch this because <laughs> it is just. Mm. Hopefully, whatever they're doing with the new movie is going to be way better than that because, y- yeah, animated Kender. <laughs> anyway, um, just going back to what uh, everybody else was saying, the it seems as if a lot of people think that rules is agreed upon is the better way to go about it yeah it also seemed it seemed to confuse a lot of people that this needed to be pointed out which yeah i mean my particular the reason that rules has fun irked me is because there is already a provision in the dungeon master's guide that says if you know rules discussions break down then the dm has the final say to me, it seemed like the rules is fun declaration was almost saying, well, the DM has the final say unless someone says that's not fun, in which case that can be overridden because that's the way it's supposed to work. And that was what sort of bothered me about the whole rules is fun idea. Is it seemed, and this, it may be just me reading into it with my you know, massively pessimistic attitude about players, but it just (laughs) seemed like it was taking even more agency away from the DM and saying, you know, not only do you have to make rules judgments when things don't mesh within the game, you have to do it in a way that all the players are going to agree on 100% of the time, or they're going to ignore you, and they're going to be in the right. Right, yeah. I see what you mean. It's it's uh, like you said. It's the argument of well, this isn't fun. Okay, but sometimes there has to be like something to overcome. You know, if something is difficult, then it's not fun. Then you know it gives you a challenge to aim for, particularly within the rules. And I know obviously, Wizards of the Coast themselves are not going to say, "Hey, if you don't like the way the system works, go and try another game system." There's plenty out there, because obviously they're not going to turn away customers. Mm. But I think if you are in the sort of segment where you're not finding the D&D rules fun, then there's a lot of other tabletop role-playing games out there. And I mean, honestly, I would just advise that people just broaden their horizons anyway. So if you've never stepped outside of D&D, Feng Shui too. I hate to say it, but that's a good one if you want Yeah, if you want improvisation and yeah. a minimal rule set, just go to town, literally, because mm-hmm. it's a sort of modern setting, so. Yeah, you kind of have to. Chinatown, ideally. Also, welcome back, Marty. It's been a while since we've heard from you. Mm. I like that he's reborn. Um, we, we missed you. And we've mostly got your name pronunciation down. Mostly. <laughs> Let's hope he doesn't listen to the Patreon recordings. 
And continuing on in general feedback, Rebel says, Good show, guys. He actually says that twice because we released two episodes before we read the feedback again. So um, Rebel on Discord says, Good show, guys. Thanks, Rebel. And that brings us to this week's community questions. What announcement from D&D Direct caught you most off guard? Did you see Dragonlance coming? Did you think the D&D movie was actually going to happen? Were you expecting a new minis game? So what do you think of the Spelljammer announcement? Is this what you were hoping for in a 5th edition Spelljammer resource? What's your favorite of the denizens from the Monstrous Compendium? And Spelljammer now has the Astral Sea in it. Do you think this is the same Astral Sea from previous editions? Do you think this puts the future of Planescape at risk? Where are the gods anyway? Details on how you can get in touch coming up next. And so this brings us to the end of the 208th entry into our Chronicle. We'll be back with our 209th entry on May 4th. But before we go, we want to know, for you, dear listener, how was the show? Whatever your thoughts or feelings, let us know. You can comment on the show's post on our website, heroesrisepodcast.com. You can find us on all good social media at Heroes Rise D&D. You can email us, sendingstone at heroesrisepodcast.com. Or you can chat with us live and join the Heroes Rise community at discord.heroesrisepodcast.com. This show isn't just a one-way conversation, and we always love to hear from you. So take a minute and tell us your thoughts. And make sure that you're never caught in the middle of a quest without us by subscribing to us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and anywhere else that good podcasts can be found. Or through our feed at feeds.heroesrisepodcast.com. And if you like the sound of what we do, there are many ways you can help support us. Heroes Rise is an official Dice Envy affiliate. Get yourself some incredibly awesome dice that will not only make you the envy of your table, but will also help out your favourite D&D podcast. Just use our affiliate link, heroesrisepodcast.com forward slash Dice Envy, and be sure to enter the code Heroes Rise at checkout and save yourself an extra 10%. You can also help support the show by subscribing to our Patreon. Tiers start from $4 per month and give you raw recordings of the show before the Wednesday release, Heroes Rise t-shirts, pins, and a super secret patron lounge on our Discord server. Plus, occasionally, you might get dragged into a recording or two for some dissonant whispers. Lucky you! To become a patron, just head on over to patreon.com slash heroesrisednd. And if a financial donation isn't your thing, that's cool too. Every time you share our show with friends, family, or your friendly local gaming stores, you help our audience to grow, and that's ultimately why we do this. Thanks for all of your likes, shares, and retweets. We want to take a moment to thank our social media mage Ray Ray, our Conjuration Cabal Bloodlake, Indigo Spectre, and Gath Memvar, and our audio alchemists Mikey, Branwyn, and Tomosthenes. Special thanks go to our halfling moneylenders, Marty Chidoric, the Despoiler, The Hobbyist, Randall Evans, Brewhammer, The Sabi, Rat Queen, Amber Squirrel Craning, and Strife. Vince Vept, for all the awesome music you've heard throughout the show, be sure to check him out at vincevept.bandcamp.com, and Lo of Lowe's Lair, the designer of our banners and avatars. You can find him on Twitter at Lowe's underscore Lair, and Facebook at facebook.com slash Lowe's Lair. But above all, we want to thank all of you for tuning in and listening to our tales this evening. And until our paths shall cross again... Fare thee well, brave adventurers. Okay, good show. Oh, and uh, I'm glad you're back, obviously. Yeah, me too. There was some major pent-up frustration. I was um, keeping a hat on, so to speak. Yeah, maybe everything will work out all right in the end. Who knows?
Anyway, I should probably get back to calibrating my planar micro calipers. There's still a few astral microns off. Hey, so, like, hypothetically, how long do you think it would take you to walk from here over to the workshop door? Like 3.8 seconds? Why? Oh, no reason. I mean, hopefully that'll give me enough of a head start. Uh, by the way, did I show you my new running shoe? Hang on, let me... Here, let me just put them on. Look, look at these, right? Watch how fast I can go. Okay, you know, thinking about it, Spelljammer really isn't the strangest thing in my life. Is There's that, for instance. Okay, well, back to... The hell did you do to my workshop? And, of course, the thing that sent Ostron running for the hills, Spelljammer, is actually confirmed. Coming in a three-book box set, we're promised a thrilling space-faced... Space-faced? Space <laughs> what? Riddle, played by Megan Kenrick, and Torvan, played by Cod... 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 <laughs> um, if you go to... Hang on. I thought I had this up, but I don't. Please hold. Because it's a port location on a major river that feeds into the ocean, Sharn had n Okay. You, you mean Sharat had no problem? Yeah, that should probably <laughs> yeah, be Sharat. Okay. That should probably be Sharat. Editing my pamphlets. <laughs> Because it's a port location on a major river that feeds into the ocean, Sharat had no trouble becoming a major trade center, and eventually a bus bustling... <laughs> I'm sorry, Branwyn. <laughs> you know those car chase scenes where a car jumps a guard, guard whale? <laughs> <laughs> you know those car chase scenes where a car jumps a... Chumps? Dang it! <laughs> I'm sorry, <No>. Branwyn. <laughs> you know those car chase scenes where a car jumps a... This is probably the smallest sentence in the entire document as well. I love it. I quit. <laughs> no, I just tried. It doesn't go well. Mm. I mean, I was about to say Katie can't bring me back, and then I went, oh, never mind. What a bet. <laughs> you know those car chase scenes where a car jumps... Damn it! <laughs> <laughs> okay. Deep breath in. <sighs> Inhale, calm. Exhale, <laughs> car jumps a guardrail. And again, in and it's, out. it's obviously a jar chumps a guardrail. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Tortily. <laughs> Murder comets and space clowns. <laughs>